Welcome to the Antioch Austin podcast. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you. For more information about Antioch Austin, please check our website at AntiochATX.com. Oh, don't you love Jesus? He is so good. I love Jesus. I love Austin, Texas. This is actually where I'm from. So I'm, I'm fourth generation Austin on both my mom and my dad's side. They're both here, actually. So Bob and Ruthie Herber. And uh, so, so glad to be with you guys. I love J.D. and Liz Griffin, don't you? I am so proud of them. They've just gone through the trial of their life, and they're just looking more like Jesus. They've suffered so well. I don't want to start crying yet. I'm an emotional man, but I'm going to try to make it to the end of the sermon before I start crying, Liz. But uh, we were talking last night, we have so many shared experiences. They were actually at my wedding, they hadn't even started dating yet. Believe it or not, J.D. was the drummer at my wedding. He had platinum hair, and it was all twisted into these little spikes like a dog collar. So he's come a long way, and uh, they, are, they are some of the dearest friends, and uh, I know are leading you so well. And there's just something about J.D. and Liz, they are just cool aren't they? It's just, I mean, there's just like this Griffin swag, you know, and he's not meaning to do it, but when he walks, it's just cool, right? And, and uh, he makes bald cool, which I love, and, uh, and he, can say, he can say things like, uh, what did you just say, man? Um, modest is the hottest. If I said that, that would be so cheesy. He says it, and it's like slam poetry, drop the mic. I, I don't get it, right? He can wear the tightest jeans. If I tried it, I'd look like a ballerina. He looks like a beast. I, so, but, but here's the thing I love about J.D. and Liz is they've been willing to do the foolish things, the things that the world would say seem foolish in order to see the kingdom of God advance. And we were coming back in town. We were at a wedding out in East Texas yesterday, and, and we were coming back in, and we were laughing about the, the start of the church plant in Seattle. You guys know that these guys have been planting churches. They are seasoned leaders. And we were from Waco, Texas. I moved from Austin, went to, went to Waco to go to Baylor. And we were all leading a, a college group. One clap. Thank you. One Baylor fan. And uh, so don't judge me. My mom went to UT. So uh, there you go. And... Um, but, you know, this was before Waco was cool. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if you think Waco is cool, but <laughs> this was before Fixer Up or Chip and Joanna Gaines. And uh, so we're going to plant a church in Seattle. These guys are leading a church in Seattle. And, you know, to us, Waconian Seattle is the, the epic apex of coolness. And so what are you doing? We don't know anyone there. And we land in Seattle with this small team, we, we don't know anyone. How do you start a church? And so we go to, to Pike's Place. It's the main market in the heart of the coolest city, Seattle. Here we are, these Waco bumpkins. And, and we come up, and I just sense God saying, you got to do like a drama in the middle of the square. Okay, and, and you guys have seen the outreaches that Antioch Austin does. They're awesome, right? You did your Halloween Harvest Fest. You got a cool dance. You got this perfectly choreographed drama. And I'll turn over to JD and I say, J and JD's about to leave this church plant, right? I'm going to get to go and then leave. And, but JD's stuck in Seattle. So I said, JD, we got to do a drama. We got to do an outreach in the middle of the city. And I just see him go, 
And, and this cool fraternity guy turns to JD and goes, I think I'm going to die. <laughs> and, and so JD goes, bro, we, I'm sorry, we can't, we don't have a sound box, right? You need like music. And I said, no problem. I got a guitar in my trunk. And he's like, but we don't, we don't have costumes or anything. I was like, no problem. I said, you just get out there and do it, and Liz and I will sing. And so, and he's like, what are you going to sing? I was like, we'll make up something as we go. I don't know if you've ever heard like a guitar with no amplification downtown. It sounds like a little baby harpsichord, like blink, blink, blink. And so here we are, but, but I just want to say they did it. So Liz and I are singing. We, we go into this park. There's two women sitting down on a bench, and so we set up right in front of these two women because we're like captive audience. And Liz and I start singing, hallelujah. And JD's out there being Jesus, you know. Ah! These ladies didn't look up once. Like we were three feet from them. They didn't look up once. JD then preaches the gospel. People are just walking by. They don't even recognize that we're doing anything. We finish, and he just puts his head down and walks off. And I tell you what, that was foolish. But we just got back from Seattle, Washington this past week. J.D. and I were there on the board for that church. And I want to tell you, God has done something beautiful. There is a beautiful church of hundreds of people. They've just bought a building on one of the main thoroughfares. They planted two other churches, and they're sending missionaries to the nations of the world. Can I just tell you that God uses foolish things? And my, my question for you today is, are you foolish enough? you're taking notes today, I want you to write that down. Are you foolish enough? Because perhaps you've never heard a sermon on this, but I want to tell you that this is so important for you to live out your destiny in God. Our scripture this morning is in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, 28, and 29. It says this, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. I want to say I had it all wrong growing up. You know, here, here was what I thought I needed to do. I thought I needed to become the most powerful, the most prominent, the most prestigious, and the most popular, and to wow people, and they would be in all of my life, and I would say, yeah, you see all that? And I'm a Christian. And I thought, that is what will draw people into the kingdom, and that is how I can do God a favor. And I've learned that life is not about me doing God favors, but my me surrendering and submitting and humbling myself so that God can come and be great. You know, if you don't like foolishness, it's going to be hard for you to really grasp this thing called the kingdom of God because Scripture says this, 1 Corinthians 1.18, a few verses earlier, says, for the message of the cross is foolishness. For the message of the cross is foolishness. Like, I find that we as Christians, we want to be so cool. We want to fit in. We want to be popular. But the Bible says the message of the cross is foolishness. Like, ladies and gentlemen, you've chosen a foolish faith. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So I spent my early years on this hamster wheel of performance, 
trying to look the best, spending hours and hours in the gym, not just to be healthy, but to have some kind of image and taking all kinds of supplements, trying to get in every single organization that could get credit to my name, trying to have all these accomplishments. But how many of you know that in the end, you still are empty? And let me just tell you, I was already a Christian. Like the end of my story is not, and then I got saved. Like I was a Christian trying to do all these things. You know, the, the message of the Bible is this, that it's not about some religion where we do enough things. It's a, about a relationship with a living God who speaks and calls us into journeys that don't make sense. And I want to look for a moment at the life of Abraham because he's the prototype of our faith. He's known as the father of faith. If you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, we find his story. It says this, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land. I will show you the first thing we see in Abraham's life is God shows up and says, leave, leave, Abraham. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will bless. And all peoples, I love that phrase because I lead a church called All Peoples in San Diego, California. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went. I want to tell you the context of this story in case you don't understand the cultural significance of Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was the, the seat of learning of the ancient world. It was like the New York City or the London of its day. It had the highest and most sophisticated educational system. All the advances in science and in agriculture were coming from this place. It was the, the, the hub of commerce. Everything impressive was in Ur of the Chaldeans. And then God shows up to this man who was doing really well from a very prominent family and says, Abraham, you got to go. You got to leave. And Abram's going, great, where, God? And he goes, to the land I'll show you. You notice he doesn't even tell him where he's going. Can I just tell you, if you're going to follow God, you're going to find yourself stepping in to foolishness. You're going to find yourself stepping into things that don't make sense. But in that space of foolishness is where you find faith. And in faith is where you find the power of God. So here's my story. I'm, I'm in college, and uh, I, I, I just wanted more. I, I, I was discontent with, with, with the things of the world, and I heard about this group that was going to Juarez, Mexico, or if you're from Texas, Juarez. And, and it was a, a couple hundred college students and they came back reporting from this mission trip that they were seeing hundreds of people saved. And, and I thought, that's amazing, because I've been on some mission trips. I grew up in First Baptist Church right down the street. And we had gone on some mission trips, but we'd either build something or we'd do like a, a puppet show. And we might have like a third grader rededicate their life to Jesus. That would be like the apex of the thing. So when hundreds of people are talking, and I'm not down on First Baptist Church, by the way. I'm so thankful for that. I'm just saying, this wasn't my background of having all these people make decisions to come to Jesus. But even more than that, what was blowing my mind is they were talking about miracles of healing taking place on the streets. 
Now, I had read that in the Bible, and because of my church upbringing, I never doubted that the Bible was true. I just doubted that God was still doing the same things he did in the Bible. I actually thought, I guess God has changed, even though the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I thought that was probably the one verse that had changed. So <laughs> I'm hearing about this, but here was the problem with this college group. They seemed foolish. Like back then, I, I grew up the frozen chosen, right? Right? We sat in our pews, right? I don't know why people call it a pew. That's a horrible name for a seat, right? A pew. Come and sit in my pew, right? But, but we sat in our pews, and, and we didn't move. The only time anyone raised their hand in church is if they had a question, right? And only time someone closed their eyes is if they were sleeping, right? You know, if someone cried, it was because someone hurt their feelings, not because God was moving. And so this was my church experience. Well, these people were, I mean, their, their hands were up. And, and, and I had this thought, like, if you raise your hand, at least raise them this way. Like, this way pushes God back. I don't, I don't know why we think the things we think in church, right? But that's what I thought. And, and, and I mean, they were, they were praying. They didn't pray these solemn prayers. Like, they were on their knees, like, rocking back and forth, pleading with God. It was so uncomfortable for me. The music would start pumping up, and they would start dancing, you know, I'm like, what are they doing? Like, they're going to start bringing out snakes soon, you know? I was freaked out by these people. They didn't bring out snakes, by the way. But they were, they were freaking me out, right? And, and, uh, but, but they were seeing things and talking about things that were mind-boggling. And I longed, like, if this word is true and this stuff is still going on that happened with Jesus and the disciples, I've got to see it. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling in your heart where you're like, if this is really real, I want to be a part of it. I don't want to just have a Sunday religion. And that's what they were seeing. And so I reluctantly climbed on the bus. I was this, what I thought, too cool for school fraternity guy. So we get down into Mexico, and they weird me out. I mean, these people, they, they prayed all the time. Like, I ran out of things to pray, and they would just keep praying. They actually went on a fast, like no eating. I thought, is that legal to do as a college student, right? Like, that's all we do is eat pizza, right? And, and then we get down there, and so I'm sitting on the back row, because in the mornings we'd have these worship times, and I'm sitting on the back row with my arms crossed. The honest reason is because I wanted to be close to the door just in case it got too weird. I was going to run away. Now, where do you run in Juarez, Mexico? But I was still going to do it. But I'm sitting there, and the pastor reads this scripture about how God chose the foolish things. And how God chose the weak things. And he starts talking about the move of the spirit that's going on around the world. In South America. In Africa. In China. And how miracles, signs, and wonders are happening. How the church is exploding. How in fact the church in America is lagging behind. And how God is still doing the same things he did in biblical times today. And he's doing it often through unschooled and educated, uneducated people, but who have been with Jesus. And that have maybe small educations, but massive faith. And as he's telling these stories, something in my heart just started burning. Because I'm thinking, I have got to see this. But then he went on to say, in order to see this, you have to be humble. Because God opposes the proud. James chapter 4, the Bible says this, God opposes, that word means to stiff arm the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Then the Bible goes on to say in James chapter 4, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty right hand and he 
will lift you up. He started talking about broken people versus unbroken people. And I'm thinking, I, I don't want to be broken. I want to be together. I want to look together. But he, he started saying a, a horse that's unbroken creates complete damage to its master. Well, I understand that. My sister's in the room today at two years old. My parents were taking pictures of my twin sisters in a blue bonnet field. Some horses come up that are unbroken. My little dog, a little teacup poodle named Croissant, is barking at the, do- at, at the horses. This horse pushes my big football player dad out of the way, takes a swipe with his leg at the dog, misses the dog, hits my sister in the jaw. She does a backflip, breaks her jaw in nine places, goes into a coma. Now, by God's grace, she's alive today. But she suffered her whole life through that. I understand the danger of an unbroken horse. And the pastor went on to say many of us in Christianity are like those unbroken horses that we actually cause more damage for the kingdom than we do good. But a broken animal can be a tremendous benefit for the master to ride upon. That if you humble yourself, if you'll repent of yourself, if you'll relinquish your rights, then God can use you. And I'm sitting on that back row, and I don't know if you've ever had this. I got this conviction come over me. I start feeling nauseated, right? It was, it was very uncomfortable. And I'm thinking, wow, God, how could you use me? I'm so prideful. All of everything has been about me. It's about how I look, about how I appear and what I want to do. And the pastor at that moment said, if you need to humble yourself, if you need to go low before the Lord, if you need to be broken, Come forward right now. I want to tell you, I got up. I didn't care what people thought. I ran to the front. I hit my knees, and I started repenting and say, God, I'm so sorry. My whole life, I wanted to look wise, powerful. I wanted to look popular. But God, if it takes me looking foolish, that's okay. And then God took me up on it. And I start crying. And I'm like, oh, no. Real men don't cry, right? I start crying. I start I start booing. Then this woman comes up, this fiery little Asian woman comes up, and she walks over to me and puts her hands on me and starts praying for me. And when she does, it's like lightning hits me, and I start going, ah, ah. I start shaking, and I'm like, oh, no. Like, I have judged these weird charismatics my whole life, and now I are one. Right? And I'm like, ugh, ugh. and I'm crying, and then she starts going, he's a self-made man, Lord. He's a self-made man. And I'm thinking, oh, no, this is like, I've read about this in the Old Testament. This is judgment. And the ground's about to open up. I'm about to be swallowed and die. And so I, here I am crying, shaking in the front. He's a self-made man. Get him prophesied doom over me. He's a self-made man, Lord, and I am just undone. And then she says this. But the Lord says, if you will humble yourself, he will raise you up to be a leader in this generation. And I melted on the ground. And I didn't get up for 45 minutes. I finally get up. I'm, you know, getting the snot off me and wiping my tears. I look up and the whole room's empty. Well, except one girl. She looks at me. I look at her. I'm like, this is awkward. And we walk out. <laughs> now, let me tell you what happened that night. The power of God had, had come on me in a way that I, I, I didn't even want it to because it looked weird. But that night, I go to the streets. Now, let me tell you, my whole life, I had never led one person to Jesus. I had gone on this mission trip. I had memorized a track in Spanish. I would find the softest, sweetest-looking Mexican people go up. They'd listen to the whole track. Then I'd say, do you want to give your life to Jesus? Right? Quieres recibir Cristo en tu corazón? And they'd go, no. 
And I'd be like, what? <clears throat> like, I thought this was the magical world of Disney for salvations, right? And they'd say no, I, person after person. Then I'd pray for the sick, right? They'd call up people, and people are talking about healing. I'd pray for the sick. You know, Lord, heal this person. Are you better? No. Right? And then I, you know, you just start trying anything. Be healed, right? You start trying the TV and thing. You know, be healed. And that didn't work, you know? And then you're like, okay, what did Jesus do? He spit on people. You know, you're spitting on them. <laughs> Nothing's happening, right? That night, we go out on the streets. And I, I, I walk around sharing the gospel. Nothing different. And the first person comes to the Lord. The second person, I leave the Lord. The third person, I leave the Lord fourth person in one night I'm like what just happened but then it's time to pray for healing and I'm thinking like no I'm the healing dummy I've tried this I don't want to spit on anybody else and and so I'm sitting in the back and and I'm just guarding the bags right I'm just staying with the backpacks right like I'm the servant back here and 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 they and they say who needs healing right and different people raise their hand and different team members are going up to pray for them and I'm like, good, everyone's taken care of. And then this old man, he looks horrible. He comes up, his back is hunched over, and he walks up and he goes, I'm like, oh, it's not me. I'm like, I'm the healing dummy. And so I, 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 what do you do? I walk towards him. I see this one sorority girl. She's just looking like this. I grab her. I'm like, come with me. She didn't have a clue what we were doing. And we walk over, and we just lay hands on this guy's stomach. Because he, he's pointing to his stomach, and, and he's explaining that he's been in pain for 20 years. We put our hands on his stomach and just say, Jesus, would you heal this guy? Immediately, his stomach goes, like this. Like, it, it comes and, and extends towards me. And we go, ah! And it starts, it starts pulsating in and out, and the girl next to me is crying. Not because she's so happy. She is so scared. His back starts going, crack, crack, crack. And you see his eyes getting all big, and we're like, this is either really good or we're killing this man. <laughs> his back keeps snapping. His stomach keeps contorting. It finally subsides. Then he's standing straight up. Tears are pouring down his eyes. He lifts his hands in the air like this, not like this, like this, <laughs> and starts going, glory to Dios, glory to Dios, glory to God, gracias Cristo, gracias, thank you Jesus, thank you Jesus. We call a translator over. He goes, he tells the translator, I've been suffering for 20 years. I've been hunched over. I've been in intense pain. I am completely healed. And we're looking at this guy, and he looks completely different. I mean, he started like this. He's standing like this. And it was like we stepped into the Bible. And I thought, I never want to go back. And God led me on a journey of foolishness from then on. He started calling me on things. And, and your journey probably won't be like mine, but I was such a self-made man. That God was saying, Robert, are you willing to part with those things so that you can become a spirit man? So that what is inside you is more important than what's on the outside. And so God started asking me, would you lay down your nice car? I drove the, the sweetest sports car of anyone I knew at my age. And I'm not against sports cars, but for me, it was my identity. He said, will you part with it? I remember turning that in and changing for a, just a normal looking car, and it was it was so hard, but God was getting a hold of my, my heart. He, he told me, hey, would you part with all your fancy clothes? It was so hard. I remember going to the altar in a, in a worship service and going, Lord, I lay down my corduroy pants. Not my corduroy pants, Lord. But it was so hard, but it was so free because I was getting free. 
from the things that bound me. Like God started changing my life and started leading us into doing things that might have seemed foolish. I'll never forget one of the most amazing experiences that J.D. and I had together. 2004, that great tsunami comes and hits Southeast Asia, decimating Indonesia, Thailand, Papua, all these different countries. And I'm watching this on TV, and, and I sense that God's saying, you need to go. And I thought, you know, that's foolish, because what we're seeing is everyone leaving the country. And here we are, we're pastors. Like, what are we going to do there? But we respond. We go and submit it to our, our, our leaders, and we get together on a team. And while everyone's flying out of Sri Lanka, no flights were coming in. Like, our flight was empty coming in. And we land in there, and we don't have a contacts to, to, to go work with. We, we don't know what we're doing. And I remember God just opening up doors. The next thing I know, I'm sitting in the office. I believe, J.D., you were with me, in the second command of the whole Navy of Sri Lanka. They said, what do you do? We said, we can do whatever you need us to do. They said, we're going to put you in charge of this village. And soon we're, we're, our, our teachers are teaching the kids and our medical personnel from our churches are using their gifts to, to start helping people. And our social workers are doing counseling. And, but God spoke to us to go to another city in the southeast where no one had gotten to. Yet I'll never forget going up to a taxi driver and saying, will you take us there? They said, no. I went to the next one. They said, no. I go to the third one. This taxi driver looks at me and says, Everyone, he goes, every man must come to a place where he dies. I am ready. I will take you. <laughs> like, thank you, encouraging taxi driver. <laughs> so we get in these, two different, in these two different vehicles, and we go down to the southernmost part uh, of, of the island of Sri Lanka. And I remember right before we went, we were in a prayer meeting. You know, and, and, and don't think that prayer meetings are just doing some religious thing. No, this is where we communicate with God. And, and believe when you go into your place of prayer that God wants to speak back to you. This woman comes up to me right before we go down to southeast Sri Lanka, and she says this. She goes, Robert, there's going to be someone that you're going to meet on the way. And you would have the tendency in your flesh, in your natural man, to write this person off. But this person's going to open up doors that God's going to use powerfully. Well, we go down and we end up in the city. Now, we have no contacts. We, we don't know what we're doing. So I wake up the next morning. I'm saying, God, what are you calling us to do? Like, where do we go? Where are the people that we can help? Like, we, we know nothing of what to do. And I see in my mind's eye, I see a vision of a guy in a maroon shirt. So we go to our van and the, the, the van driver says, where are we going? And I said, just start driving. Right, and we're driving, he's, he's saying, where now? And we go, uh, right, uh, left. And the whole time he's like, what are we looking for? And I said, well, we're looking for a, a, our man with the maroon shirt. Right? And so we're just driving around looking for a man in a maroon shirt. Like, that is foolish. And as we drive, we're, we're driving around, and we finally see this building. And I say, stop here, and out from behind the building steps a man in a maroon shirt. He walks up to me, I run up to him. And he gives me this big smile. His teeth are missing. His hair is like this. And immediately I, I feel that phrase come back. There's a person that you would tend to discount. But don't do that because they're going to lead you. I said, we're looking for the survivors from the tsunami. Can you, can you show us? He says, yes. He gets in our van. And we go through this labyrinth of turns. And we come into the, behind these walls. And there's these hundreds of people. 
they start surrounding our van. We start giving our medicine. The, the teachers jump out and start working with the children. They, the, the people immediately start saying, our children haven't had joy in two weeks. Thank you for bringing joy back. But then there's problems that were too big for our, our medicines. And we said, we don't have things to help these people, but we'll pray for you. And I'll never forget us praying for the first person. His hand was super swollen. He couldn't move it. It had been crushed by a car. And we pray for him, and all of a sudden, his hand starts going like this. And through the whole crowd, you hear this, like this. And God heals him. And his hands visibly change, and a big crowd gathers around. We say, God healed your body, but he wants to heal your heart. He goes, I accept. He was a Hindu. I said, you can't accept. You don't know what we're telling you yet. <laughs> we preach the gospel with him. He gives his life to Jesus. Another person steps up. She has malaria. She's burning up. Like you put your hand on her head. It was on fire. And, and we pray for her, and in an instant, her head just goes cool. And she's, she's freaking out. And it said, God healed your body, but he wants to heal your heart. We lead her to the Lord. Person after person. Uh, another person, their stomach started contorting, just like that first man. It was wild. Every person. It's one of the few times where I've seen every person in a place get healed. And we took those people that got healed, we went into a room, and we started the first church in that village. Christians came a little later to that, time, that place and said, this was the hardest Hindu village. There's never been a church. But in a day, there was a healing revival and a church birth. But can I tell you, it came out of foolishness. Let me just tell you where we are to end our time. We're now in San Diego, California. We left Waco, Texas. I had a, a wonderful job there. We were leading the college ministry. I had about 800 students. We owned our house outright. We had a great salary. But one day, God speaks, move to San Diego, California, and plant a church. Now, I was a true Texan. I didn't know where San Diego was in California. Like, I didn't know if it was in, in the, like, farmland, northern California. I had to actually get up and look at a globe to see where San Diego was. We moved to San Diego not knowing anyone. In fact, we couldn't get a house we went three times looking for a house. We never found one. And so finally, it's time for us to move. And people are saying, what are you going to do? My moving truck comes and says, what's the address that we go to? I said, go to San Diego. They said, what address? I said, I can't tell you. I'm going to tell you when you get there, I hope. Right? So we go. We land in a hotel. And, and, and God opens up a door after we land for us to be six houses from campus. And soon, person after person after person starts coming to the Lord. They had said San Diego was a hard place to plant a church. In fact, we found that 0.5% in a five-mile radius of where we started our church, only 0.5% belonged to any kind of religious organization. Did you hear that? Like, that's smaller than a lot of Muslim nations. But can I just tell you that as we went, God was faithful. And person after person would come to know Jesus. You know, and, and by God's grace, now we're 10 years in, and you know, San Diego is one of the most expensive cities on earth, and I just was able to announce to our church last week that we own six acres on the main freeway. I, I had gone and asked this, this real estate guy, hey, should I try to, try to buy this and build a church there? He goes, man, the chances of you getting that are so slim. I said, so you're saying there's a chance? <laughs> we just announced that we're building on the freeway. There's like hardly another church on the whole freeway. But you know, God is a God of the impossible. 
And can I just tell you that God doesn't want to ruin your life? When he calls you into foolish things, it's not to humiliate you. It is so that you'll be humble. Because when you're humble, God can come and lift you up. And your story might look way different than me. You might be saying, I can't relate to this. Like, I, I don't feel called to go to these crazy nations and do these things or move across the, the nation to, to go plant a church. But can I just tell you that if you walk with Jesus, he's going to call you to do things that the world says are foolish. And I don't know what it is for you today. It might be as simple as tithing, giving 10% of your income to the local churches. That's the command of the Bible. And you might be thinking, there is no way. Like, I can barely make my bills with 100% income. How could I give 10% away? Can I just tell you that as you step into that and you humble yourself, God can come and lift you up. It might be taking a risk and changing jobs. Like some of you know you're not doing what you're called to do. You might be playing it safe and God's telling you to launch out and start a new business or to make a career change, but you're saying, that's foolish. Can I just tell you that as you step into foolish, that's the place where God can grab you and pull you into your destiny. You know, it might be taking a stand at your workplace and sharing the gospel with someone, and you say, I don't want to be labeled as a Jesus freak. I don't want to be known as one of those foolish Christians. But can I tell you, as you do that, that the words from the Holy Spirit will start flowing through you, and you will see people's lives transformed. I don't know what it is for you. For some of you in this room, I know because our family of churches, the Antioch Movement, we have a call to risk it all. And some of you will be called to the nations and you're thinking, how could I do that? Like how, how could my, my family, my parents, my friends, they're gonna say that's foolish. But can I tell you that as you jump into foolishness, you're gonna find yourself in the greatest adventure. I don't wanna just read about adventures in books, I wanna live one. And God's called many of you to do the same. Would you just stand up with me?